Straw Hut Media. Some aspects of your life are within your control, and others aren't. But what's always yours is the power to define how to assign meaning to those things. My guest today is an advocate for the disabled and LGBTQ plus communities. He's a policy advisor to presidential hopeful Andrew Yang and an insta-hunk. His name is Carson Tuller. We'll talk about growing up Mormon, coming out, finding love, recovering from a spinal cord injury, and above all, how to live authentically. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. My name is Carson Tuller. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I currently work as a policy advisor for Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, and I'm a speaker and a writer. While he was growing up, Carson's father worked as a psychologist in the Air Force, and being in a military family means moving around a lot. So I kind of grew up in nine different states, honestly. In high school, his family decided to settle in Salt Lake City, Utah, where the rest of his extended family lived. Almost 50% of the population in Salt Lake City belonged to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the Mormon Church. And if you know anything at all about Mormons, you likely know they have a pretty firm stance on non-heterosexual relationships, not only between members of the Church, but between all people everywhere regardless of their religious beliefs. But... That's not to say that Carson didn't benefit in some ways as a result of his religious upbringing. Um, yeah, so growing up Mormon was the best because there's such a focus on family. Moving around all the time as a kid made maintaining friendships difficult. But Carson said that his close relationships with his siblings made it easier. For most of my upbringing, I would say that my kind of growing up in the Mormon religion was something that was really, really positive for me. And it wasn't until I started realizing that I was gay, um, it wasn't until then that being Mormon started to be a problem for me, or it started to no longer serve me the way that it did uh, previous to that point. So I knew that I was gay or I knew that something was going on that was different when I was like eight, right? And then when puberty hit and I started actually experiencing like sexual attraction for men, was that was when I was about 14 years old. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of exposure to, to gayness or queerness at all. And so I didn't know what it was. All I knew is that I didn't have reference for what I was feeling. And so like being attracted to guys, falling in love with my guy friends, I only had a lot of confusion, but I couldn't explicitly at the time, I didn't realize that that was going to be a huge issue in me fitting into my faith and into like my faith group. So at the time I didn't really realize that 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 I wasn't going to be able to fit in. And then it became apparent over the course of the next 10 years, you know, from 14 years old to around 22 or 23, that um, it was going to be a big difficulty or it would be a big impediment to me living authentically and also kind of maintaining my relationship to my faith. 
when did you come out and how did that go when you were kind of, you know, I don't want to say struggling, but kind of struggling with what you've been, what you've learned being a member of the church and then how you were actually feeling. It had to have been hard. Oh, it was so, it was so hard. It was devastating, right? Carson was coming to terms with his sexuality while the Mormon church, his church, was financing California Proposition 8, proposing an amendment to the state constitution defining marriage as between a man and a woman. The Mormon church contributed $20 million to that campaign, and it passed, though it was challenged almost immediately and officially declared unconstitutional in 2010. This was the landscape in which Carson was trying to understand his own sexuality. So I had enough sense that there was something very wrong with this whole gay thing. And so my tendency was just to want to squash it, was like put, like push it as deep into the closet as it could possibly go and kind of buckle down in terms of all things spiritual, just become a perfectionist, compensate for this, what I consider to be like this darkness inside of me and just turn into a perfect kid. And so I became very focused on my spirituality, on being good, on being Christ-like, and just kind of squashed every kind of thing that would be considered a homosexual experience. (laughs) Um, And of course, all the while still being very stereotypically gay, like tumbling and playing the flute and being into very not traditionally masculine things while also with all my might trying to avoid falling in love with my friends, uh, avoid any kind of like, like I said, sexual arousal that had anything to do with men. So, I mean, honestly, it became the focus of my life was, and without me even knowing, was avoiding the experience of, of being attracted to men and being gay. In the Mormon church, not only was any deviation from heterosexual relationships bad, but sexuality in general outside marriage was unacceptable. So the the general guidance given by the LDS church is that you shouldn't arouse any sexual feelings within yourself or others um, outside of marriage, and that sexuality is reserved only within marriage between a heterosexual couple. So anything, I mean, it's pretty narrow in scope. So anything outside of that, including masturbation, pornography, um, is all considered um, sinful sexual behavior. When Carson first noticed his attraction to men at 14, he dipped a very tentative toe into exploring his sexuality. I had tried to look something up on the internet, like some naked guys or something, and felt terrible. And I talked with my mom about it. I kind of said, hey, I tried to look something up and it was about guys and I didn't really see anything, but I wanted to. And she, you know, just supported me the way that she knew how. But I just kind of like, again, like swept that under the rug after, and we didn't talk about it for a long time. And the understanding was, okay, well, we will deal with this when it shows up again and when it seems to be something that is recurring or something that's really distressing. And, you know, my parents were excellent parents. Um, I have no complaints. They knew as much about gayness as I did, you know? And so we were just kind of like taking it in the best way that we knew how in terms of moving forward. He says it wasn't until high school that he realized he wasn't attracted to girls at all. And I didn't even frame it inside of like, hey, I'm falling in love with my guy friends and all I can do, like all I can think about is 
like this particular friend who's not texting me back and I really heard about it and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it was more like, I just don't know if I'm a late bloomer or something because I'm just not into girls. He decided to wait it out to see if things would change. And in the meantime, just try to be the absolute best Mormon boy he could be. I almost never quote unquote slipped up with something like masturbation. I didn't look at porn ever. I had zero sexual experiences with anyone, um, you know, early in life, through my childhood, through adolescence. So there was just like zero experimentation going on. Um, and so I was just kind of like keeping the faith, keeping an eye on my feelings and communicating those to my parents along the way. The next step for every good Mormon boy or girl is your mission trip. For women, it's considered optional to serve a mission, and for men, it's considered a commandment. So it's kind of more or less expected of you if you're a male. Carson served his mission in Concepcion, Chile. You'll go through training, you'll get some basic language skills, and then you'll be flown out to or sent out to your mission where you will um, complete your assignment for two years. And you'll be essentially like preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and also like Mormon doctrine and theology that's specific to the LDS church. Another part of your mission is that you always have a companion with you. Um, you just like stick with that person for like forever. <laughs> like you, you don't leave that person's side at any point. Males always have male companions. Females have female companions. The LDS doctrine is highly gendered. Actually, I, I know of a couple who um, went on a mission together and ended up being together while on the mission and got sent home and then they got married and now they have kids. So maybe it works out. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. That's like a Disney. Uh, that's like. Like a Mormon fairy tale. That's, so, that's like a Mormon gay fairy tale. There are so many pieces yeah. there. Wow. That's incredible. When we come back, Carson comes back, comes out and everything changes. Welcome back. Today, we're talking to Carson Tuller. Before the break, he had realized he was gay, but still went on his mission, which took him to Chile. While abroad, he met his church-assigned companion and started his missionary work. After Carson came home from his mission, the next step was to find a wife. So I went to a singles ward, which is where you go essentially participate in all church activities or religious activities with other single people and you just go on dates and you go on dates and your leaders ask you if you're dating people and how it's going. And um, yeah, it's really, really the focal point of, of progress at that point. So I came home and, you know, I was like, okay, I guess it's time to find my companion who probably is going to be a girl. And by probably, I meant has to be a girl. And so I went to church. I kept my eyes open. I was looking around for girls I was attracted to. And I didn't find any. <laughs> and there were pretty girls in my ward, right? There were I was surrounded by beautiful women and none of them were pulling my attention. I had zero desire to ask any of them out. 
And what I did have an interest in were all of the men and you know, I was going to college and I was like crushing on guys I was in classes with and I was like unintentionally flirting with guys and realizing like, oh, what am I doing? Like, this is so weird. I need to go on dates. I need to figure this out. This was in 2012, four years after his first attempts at understanding his sexuality. And it was later that year that I realized that I could no longer pretend like I wasn't feeling what I was feeling and it was just time for me to come out. It was actually the time that the church came out with a, a website about members of the church who are experiencing, as they put it, same-sex attraction. And so I listened to those stories and I looked at the website and it was literally like looking in the mirror and it was just like, okay, this is me and it's time to do something about this. It's, it's really time to like accept this. And so I came out to my parents, I came out to my bishop, I came out to slowly all of the members of my family and then extended family. And then, you know, there was like the, um, the Facebook post. And then I was finally living out of the closet as a gay man. However, I was still very much committed to living congruent with my faith and even wondered if I could still marry a girl at the time. You may or may not remember the 2015 TLC reality show called My Husband's Not Gay, about openly gay Mormon men who were choosing to remain in relationships with women. I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm attracted to men. My Husband's Not Gay set to air on TLC Sunday. The website espoused the same idea, which was, just because you're gay doesn't mean you have to live as a gay man. The point of the website is to give people support wherever they're at. And... Most of the stories that you read about are, and when I say most, I think 99% of them, if not 100% of them, are of individuals who are living congruently with church teaching. So they're active Mormons. They have foregone sexual relationships with um, people of the same sex. Even though the website's intention was to keep gay people in the church, it also served as a catalyst for Carson's eventual departure from the church. I mean, I was already very much on my way to dealing with this and I, it would it would have happened you know probably a few months after just because of the extent to which i was suffering i mean i was just suffering because i was like i said i was falling in love with my guy friends and feeling like the rejection and the hurt and the pain and um like the longing like the literal like physiological like my brain was telling me like to pair bond, you know, and it was time to find an individual to experience life with and have sexual experiences with. It, it was really quite this almost, it felt like a biological phenomenon. It was just like how I was wired, what I was supposed to be doing. And um, there were consequences to stifling that, you know. Carson came out fully at the end of 2012, within a year of returning from his mission. I had gone through the process of saying, okay, I'm going to marry a girl still. I'm going to be like the super Mormon who uh, never gives up and I'll be the poster child of gay Mormons. And then realizing I want love and then having more experiences with just my like spiritual experiences, feeling like my best self is my gay self and there's nothing wrong with this. Um, you know, I have all sorts of questions about who or what God is at this point in my life. But at that time, I fully believed like whoever God is, 
wants me to have love in my life and wants me to have a man in my life. And I was so certain of that. So I had moved away from kind of the whole, I'm going to stay a member of the church and marry a woman to I'm going to live authentically and be with a man and have all sorts of experiences and, and explore this new identity. And I was dating my first boyfriend. I mean, like two weeks before my spinal cord injury, I had had like my first kiss. And, um, it was a few weeks after that that I um, that I broke my neck. In 2013, a few days after Christmas, Carson's family went to a trampoline park. I had grown up doing gymnastics and tumbling, and I loved it my whole life. And I was no professional or anything, but it brought me a lot of joy. And I loved going to a trampoline park because I was 6'5". <laughs> I mean, I still am. And um, I could pull so, like much bigger moves in a foam pit or on a trampoline than I could on the floor. So went to the trampoline park and I jumped on like the, the tumbling track that goes into the foam pit and did a few little like warm-up flips. And then I just would, you know, sometimes launch myself off of the trampoline pull a front tuck as tight as I could, and then, you know, land in a ball in the foam and everything was good. And so I did that, pulled myself into a tuck, and then I ended up sailing through all of the foam, which ended up being pretty smashed and deteriorated. And I went through the foam to the bottom of the trampoline and then must have gone through the bottom of the trampoline and hit um, either cement or something hard underneath because I had a hematoma on the back of my head and um, broke my neck. So I basically hit the back of my neck or back of my head, broke my neck and um, the trampoline kind of settled, right? And I clearly remember hearing a little bit of a pop and feeling a little bit of a sting and then just trying to get out. And I tried to get up and nothing would work. And I tried to get up again and nothing would work. And it was like 30 seconds of that until I realized that something was probably wrong. And I realized I couldn't move any of my body. I realized I could move my arms just a little bit. And so I like I stuck one of my hands up out of the pit and tried to wave my hand around so that someone would come um, come help me. And the person who came to help me was my dad. So my whole family was essentially there. Um, they watched this all happen. And my dad came down, stabilized me in terms of making sure no one moved me. Um, and just prepared me for um, the flight to the hospital. So someone called... 911 or the paramedics or whatever they called and got a, um, a helicopter out there, put me on a stretcher and then flew me out to the hospital for some emergency um, spinal surgery. So that was the day that everything changed. And, you know, I will share actually, I don't have an opportunity to share the following piece of my story very often. And it's kind of um, a special piece of the story to me, but when I hit and broke my neck and I started to realize that something was wrong, I I really thought, I thought maybe this is like what people call paralyzed. Maybe 
this is going to happen. Um, I, I don't know if this is permanent. Maybe this will just, maybe I'm just like stunned or shocked or something and everything's going to be okay. And started to get worried and just had like a flash of, of all the things that I love to do that include my body, like swimming and running and jumping. And I mean, my physical fitness was such an important part of my outlet in life. And I was constantly, explicitly grateful for my physical health. And so there was a great amount of fear um, that went through me at that, at that moment. And then, almost just like immediately in response to that, I just had like this overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay as long as I like had love in my life. And I remember specifically thinking as like, I have a lot of people who love me and I have a lot of people who I love and that's all that matters in life. And every worry or concern or fear at that point really melted away. Like when I think about the day of my accident, there, there's not kind of that typical traumatic feeling because I was actually just filled with a lot of peace. Um, I have no idea where that came from. I don't know if it was just like a defense mechanism or um, some kind of spiritual experience or something, but I was on the stretcher out when I turned to my mom and I said, mom, it's okay, this is the next step for me. And then they put me on a helicopter and flew me away for a spinal fusion. Carson had shattered his C7 vertebrae, and after two spinal cord surgeries, he began his journey toward recovery. I'm not a religious person anymore, um, though I think I'm inherently deeply spiritual in terms of believing about love and connection and that we human beings need each other. And um, there was something special about that whole experience that has given me strength and, and reminded me that Really like love and connection is what makes human beings happy. Walking doesn't make people happy. And um, as long as I still had people in my life, that everything was going to be okay. And somehow this would be a catalyst to me doing what I needed to do in my lifetime. Even though Carson felt at peace after the accident, that's not to say that things were easy. It has been a never-ending education and a never-ending, like just an... A persistent effort over time. It's been six years and I am not someone who tends to gloss over my breakdowns. Like if something's not working in my life, I map it out. I pull out a sheet of paper. I ask myself where the lie is. I ask myself what I'm making it mean. I go through a process. I get in communication with people who, who I can talk things out with. So I take an active role in making sure that life is working for me. Um, and I only say that to say that none of this has been like easy or even um, has like come naturally to me. It, it took persistent effort. Carson remembers a moment when reality started to sink in for the first time. I remember the first time I was in the ICU and the nurse says, okay, it's, uh, it's time for you to um, catheterize yourself. 
And I realized at that moment that I was going to be using a catheter for the rest of my life and have to put a catheter in my backpack or make sure I always had access to one of these um, anytime I needed to pee or go anywhere, right? Um, and that's just like one example of the billion things that suddenly slapped me in the face where I realized, oh my gosh, my life is never going to be the same. And this is so much more complicated and complex than I ever imagined. Because, you know, I just thought about going around life in a wheelchair, like, like, oh, you know, you just push a couple of wheels instead of take a couple of steps and it's about that easy. And it's a thousand percent not that easy. Coming home from the hospital was one of the hardest parts of his recovery process because Carson says he was finally inhabiting the same environment he had before as an able-bodied person. And I was, you know, now rolling along instead of walking and taking a lift down the stairs instead of, you know, running up the stairs and all of these other things. And so it was just like a constant trigger of memories of what used to be. And I wondered if I wanted to live a life in this and like this, um, but also really dealing with feeling like I was worthless now and that I had nothing to contribute. And um, certainly that I wouldn't have sexual partners or that I wouldn't, you know, who, who wanted to date a guy in a wheelchair, who, who wanted to um, have sex with a guy who was paralyzed. Right. Like I had all of these thoughts and feelings. And so I started to, just get back into life. And I took all of those thoughts and those like dark thoughts and feelings as they came. I'm generally a pretty outgoing, positive person. It's just my nature. Like I am very thankful that like I never, almost never wake up depressed. And even through like my darkest moments, I always wake up like in a cheerful mood, like ready to go. Um, and so I think some of this is like dispositional that I happen to have like kind of a, a disposition that's not so prone to anxiety and depression. So Carson started his rehabilitation. He did physical therapy for four hours a day over the course of a few years. And along the way, I think I just started to really push back against these internal, this internal dialogue, you know, and just like I had realized that I could change the meaning around what happened and changing the meaning changed like my reality. For example, you know, relating to my spinal cord injury as though it were the next step in my life had me relate to that, my life as something purposeful as opposed to, oh, I just got in an accident and my life is screwed and I'm, I'm over. This is like, it's done, right? Those are two different interpretations of the same event. And I realized there was a lot of power in that. And so I started taking a very close look at what I was making everything mean about my life. We are in charge of what we make things in our life mean. No one else can make the things we experience mean anything um, except for us, if that makes sense. We're kind of the ones who determine what the interpretation is. In order to reevaluate his perceptions of himself, he started observing his social surroundings. And in the dating scene, in the physical fitness scene, in my sense of like being an appealing sexual partner or a valuable member of society, I just started looking at all of the ways that I had believed that I was broken. And then I also saw that I live in a society that treats disabled people like they're throwaways. And I don't say that like 
in a victim-y kind of way, we just don't invest in the lives of people with disabilities. We don't. We, you know, have some some social safety nets that um, keep people um, surviving, maybe. But that's about the best that we have. And so there's no positive visibility of people with disabilities in the media. The stories that Carson sees most frequently about people with spinal cord injuries end in suicide. And the message that sends to someone like me is, once you break your neck, like you might as well kill yourself, is the message. And so I started taking a very critical look at those messages and realizing that uh, we needed to change the narrative. And I needed to start by changing my narrative. And that's when I started to just live unleashed. Like I just said, fuck it. I'm, I'm not going to not date because I use a wheelchair. I'm not going to not have sex because I have a wheelchair. I'm not going to not travel the world or run for office or, you know, do any of the things that I want to do because I'm in a wheelchair. And then I just started taking action consistent with that. And, and then I started living that life. So you had your first kiss two weeks before your accident. Did you ever experience same-sex sex before your accident? No, I didn't. I didn't. There was no sex before Carson's, like in Carson's, um, I don't know why I'm speaking in the third person, in my, um, yeah, like able-bodied, non-disabled life. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know what orgasm feels like, obviously, um, but I don't know what bottoming feels like. I don't know what all the other things feel like, right? We won't go into it today, but if you want the full story on Carson's sex life, check out his appearance on the podcast Sex Stories. When we come back, Carson's signature sexy Instagram and his only slightly less sexy work with presidential candidate Andrew Yang. puritanical ideas of sex and sexuality permeate American culture. And as a member of the Mormon church, Carson had a lot to unlearn. I grew up feeling like anything sexual was shallow or, um, I don't know, like not meaningful, right? It was just like self-serving, um, carnal, all of these kind of negative connotations. And so when I was injured... Part of my like recovery and part of my psychological recovery was realizing the extent to which I still felt like any kind of sexuality was inherently bad and that the desire to be sexually appealing was bad. And so I just didn't ever want to portray myself as a sexual creature. He realized that the internalized and insidious negativity surrounding his desire was doing damage especially as a person with a disability, because we are, like, we just don't have any examples of people with disabilities having sex lives. We don't have examples of, um, like, romances in wheelchairs very often, or and especially sexual romances in wheelchairs. We don't have, I mean, there's not even a lot of, like, good, powerful, enabling pornography, 
with people with disabilities that I know of in wheelchairs, right? Um, and if there is, it's like few and far between. And so that also all lends to, again, this idea that, oh, I'm not deserving of sexuality and believing truly that there would be no way for me to have a sexual partner. And that was so important to people. Certainly it was important to me and um, that I just wouldn't be a viable partner that way. So taking the leap to take off my shirt or get involved in some bodybuilding or really think about you know, building some strength in a way that made me feel sexy was a big, big breakthrough for me. Another reason Carson thinks it's important to portray himself as a sexual person is to show people that even though he has an inspirational story, he isn't sharing his experiences to make someone feel better about their life. People also want to put people in wheelchairs on a pedestal or like use them as inspiration porn. And we're we are often used as kind of a, yeah, a way for people to feel good about themselves and about their lives. And wow, look how I, people tell me this all the time. And, and I get why they're saying it. I'm not belittling them for it, but it is an indicative of how people with disabilities are often portrayed. People would say, wow, you know, I saw your Instagram or I saw what you did or what you do in life. And and I just think like, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky I could never go through that. And, and it's uh, kind of implying that, um, you know, my life sucks and that there's so much to be grateful for. And so I just didn't want to only be that space. Like I want, I'm a three-dimensional human being. I'm a multi-dimensional faceted human being. And sexuality is important to me. Sexuality is important for all people. And a lot of people don't know how important it is to them because they've never had to wonder if it would be available to them. Um, and so for me, it's it's been this empowering thing to show up as a sexual being and just kind of fully embrace my sexuality. And it's also been important for me to show up that way in a wheelchair and, and have other people see like mobility devices or certain parts of my body that are atrophied or thinner or like clearly don't look able in, in certain pictures um, because I want to start, you know, including disabled bodies in what we consider to be sexy. So that, that's kind of why that's been important to me. Even though Carson's work becoming comfortable and celebrating his sexuality has a greater context, he doesn't think that anyone needs any kind of overarching motive to post whatever images they want. I think that um, celebrating sexuality or bodybuilding is as, um, as valuable a thing to celebrate as being a good vocalist or being into fashion or being into any other thing. I think that it's... Um, sometimes I get caught in the trap of feeling like I have to like justify it for this meaningful cause. Like, oh, I'm doing this for the disabled community. That's why I use these thirst traps. Now, I mean, like it happens to be important to me as well. And it's certainly a part of my activism, but I don't think anyone needs to justify how they portray or not their body in a sexual way or not. Listening to Carson talk, it isn't surprising that he's made a life for himself working in advocacy and social justice. 
I became passionate about policy and politics and the 2020 election based off of my experiences of going from this ostensibly straight, tall, white dude to now, you know, being a queer man living life through a wheelchair. I suddenly went to having like a system that totally worked for me to having to navigate certain parts of our, you know, our, our, um, social system or our world from a marginalized space. And I certainly continue to experience, you know, all sorts of other privilege and my whiteness and maleness and things. But I just realized that our country and our world really doesn't work for everybody still. And I just developed this, like this empathy and this passion for just building a system that's really inclusive for everyone. In 2018, Carson served as president of Affirmation, an international nonprofit organization that focuses on supporting LGBTQ plus people with connections to the Mormon church. And not the kind that says that you should stifle your gayness. Instead, Affirmation focuses on current and former members of the church so that they can understand that they are not wrong and that they are not broken. As human beings, one of the most beautiful things that connects us is actually our suffering. I am a proud member of the LGBTQ community, and I look forward to continuing the work that we're doing in Affirmation to make the world a safer place. The work that we're doing is literally saving lives. Thank you. I started to get more involved in advocacy and activism. I started to really get involved in politics, and I just hadn't been before, and so it was really new to me. I was learning a ton. It was a little bit overwhelming for me. I had commented on some of CNN's climate change posts, reminding people that people with disabilities are disproportionately affected by climate change because, you know, so many of us can't seek shelter quickly or, you know, um, disabilities highly correlated with like homelessness and poverty and and other things like that. We just can't escape the effects. His comment caught CNN's attention, and they invited him to create a question for one of the presidential candidates at an upcoming town hall. How do you plan to support already at-risk and marginalized people who are experiencing the impact of climate change now? Thank you for, for giving a voice to this. Um, I think about That town hall was the first time Carson saw Andrew Yang speak. And I was really surprised at how just kind of like genuine he was and authentic and also had um, really interesting proposals and policies and was very forward thinking um, and, and kind of just stood out to me. Two weeks later, the campaign reached out to him on LinkedIn and invited him to interview as a policy researcher for the campaign. I jumped online onto his like Yang 2020 website, went into the policies and just loved what I read. The focus of all of his policies was about human beings. And it was about incentivizing our economy in such a way, like in a smart way, so that people win always as a result of the com the economy. And he calls it human-centered capitalism. And it just resonated so deeply with me because it really hit home with things that I'd struggled with, right? Like looking at a system that doesn't invest in people with disabilities and then hearing him say, you know, we need to disentangle human worth from capital or from, you know, economic worth and having plans based all about human beings. Even though he was busy writing and speaking, he pitched working with the campaign part-time. 
I, I interviewed, the interview process was rigorous, it was challenging, it was thorough. And at the end, they um, surprised me by offering me a full-time job as a policy advisor. I happen to have a certain amount of personal experience that I can bring to the table and a certain set of knowledge around certain issues that I can um, bring to help guide the conversation about what people are dealing with in certain areas, um, whether it's LGBTQ matters or social issues. And so um, it kind of provides uh, another level of insight into the campaign to make sure that policies are really benefiting people, they're really human-faced, and they're actually relevant to what people are dealing with. One of Andrew Yang's major campaign points is establishing a universal basic income. The idea is that every American would receive a monthly stipend from the government as a basis, regardless of whether or not they were working. Finland experimented with it for a few years, and it's a highly debated topic. I wanted to know, what would Carson do with an extra $1,000 a month? <laughs> That's such a good question. Oh my gosh. Okay. You know, honestly, I would put it toward rent so that I could have a more accessible apartment. Absolutely. And I actually think I might use the $1,000 to renovate my bathroom because New York City apartments are so expensive. And on top of that, they're just like very small and wheelchairs um, like a lot of space, turns out. And so I would probably put the $1,000 toward having an apartment that worked better for me, a kitchen that was modified, a bathroom that was modified. Yeah, I think that's the route I'd go. We're moving into full-on election season now, with the Iowa caucus kicking it off in February and ending in June. This is an important year to be tapped in and involved. We have an opportunity to change the direction of this country for the better. My being queer totally affects the way that I see the world and politics. And I think it's because, like I said earlier, I went from not understanding what privilege was or how it affected people to realizing that there's there are, the majority of individuals just don't fit into the system. And so it gave me this depth of empathy to fight for anyone who's disadvantaged um, and create a system that really works for everyone and rewrite the rules. So, I mean, I was a, I come from a, a family that has typically voted Republican and who has some conservative values. And I was definitely in that space before I came out and then realized, oh, you know, my, my values have changed and I need to vote consistent with creating a world that works for everyone. So, so absolutely, being LGBTQ has, has influenced my political views. And I, of course, know that there are LGBTQ people who vote Republican and, um, you know, people have all sorts of different experiences and that's just mine. Stay involved and stay hopeful, Pride listeners. Hop on Google and check when your state's primary is and vote. And remember what Carson said, you and you alone have the power to frame your life and experiences. Keep up with Carson on Instagram. My handle is Carson underscore Tuller. That's just C-A-R-S-O-N underscore 
T-U-E-L-L-E-R. It's the same on Twitter, though I don't have the same kind of uh, fleshed out presence in Twitter. Um, that's, the, that's the best way to find me. Um, I do have, you know, in my current position, there are openings for me to be at speaking events or, and then that was essentially what I was doing previous to my um, role in the campaign is speaking events and, and speaking on LGBTQ and disability issues, issues on inclusion or worth and um, any, you know, inquiries about that or wanting to get involved or having any questions about my work can all be found on the, uh, the little email link in my Instagram, which is just my emails, carsonjtuler at gmail.com. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. So, I mean, I have, I have a complicated relationship with my own, like, thirst trapness.